So, Michael, I'll hand over to you then for... You've looked at the questions about why education and training is changing. We're going to explore that a little further and we're going to ask you to do that in, in groups that are of like kind, that is TAFE or higher ed or whatever other groups we have in the room. And the way we're going to do this is that I'm just going to mention right now that last year there was this event where a group of people got together and looked at the global trends that were having an impact on education, global trends. And we came up with a list of trends that we thought were the most significant. What I'd like to do is get you, it really, some of these things are going to come up again look at the Australian domain and what are, what are the things that are happening in Australia that are affecting your ability to do your job as an educator and they might be things that are affecting your organisation, it might be stuff that's affecting you in your classroom teaching and we're going to get you to prioritise them. Now everybody has a badge and the badge has a coloured dot so in the previous exercise you were to go and find someone who didn't have the same colour as you, now it's the opposite. Find your colours and find yourself in a group, so there's approximately going to be five to six people in a group. And the question is, what trends are having an impact on Australian education? So there might be some of the same things, and we want you to come up with a list of five. And even though this is a digital age workshop, we're actually going to do stuff like use butcher's paper. So we're going to ask some kind person at the table and there'll be plenty of opportunity during the day for people to swap this roll around to be a scribe. So first run through, just brainstorm, just get the ideas down. What is having an effect on your ability as an educator in Australia? When you think you've got all the ideas down, rank your top five and that's probably best done on a separate sheet. What we're going to then do is put those top five up from each group around the room and vote on them. So the intent of this exercise is actually to come up with a, a final list of trends that we think in Australia at the moment are the ones that are having a, a significant impact on the world of education. Okay, so brainstorm, prioritise down to your top five let's say 20 minutes or so, maybe a bit longer depending on how long the discussion takes and then I'll call you back to order, okay? But find a group with the same colours, so you'll need to move. Self-organise. Now if I could just interrupt for a minute. Most groups seem to be at the point where they're now starting to discuss in more detail the items they've jotted down. Remember that the next part of the task is to come up with your top five and probably best to do that on a separate piece of paper which you should now have. So decide which of the five are your priority trends and we'll take about five minutes to do that, the top five. Okay, most if not all groups have their top five. Next step. Could someone in your group, using the digital blue tack that you'll find on the table, put them on the walls, either the, the lemon wall or the white wall over there, so stick them up on the wall. Every table has a pile of black dots, so distribute those black dots among each of you, you would get five dots each. Once those lists appear on the wall, 
your job is to then look at all of the things that are up on the wall and you pick your top five. So what we're trying to get is a collective opinion about what we in this room right now see as the top five trends on education in Australia. So stick them up on the wall, the white wall or the, the lemon wall, and then vote with your five black dots over the next five minutes or so, okay? Let's do it. Just a point of clarification, you're voting on every idea, not just the ones from your table. You're now voting from everybody's in the room. Okay, if you've done your vote, cast your votes, you can return to your seats and we'll have a look at what the global trends were that were identified last year and compare them to what we've decided. Looking at that, the dots and the votes as they're appearing, clearly there's a lot of, there's some crossover from one chart to the next, that was inevitable. We might collate this information and feed it back in another format for you to use or ponder after today. So that's the first in a round of exercises where you're going to be presented with different lots of different ideas and so as Alison said at the start there's no magic bullet or cookie cutter recipe for how to solve your particular problem but what you're going to get is a lot of perspectives on what other people are doing. So just to re uh, recap, the group, the New Media Consortium met last year and these are the same people that sponsor the Horizon Report into the use of technology and education. They had a hundred people sit and talk for a couple of days and look at this grand question of the future of education and these were the ten trends identified by that group of people on that day. Now it's not the definitive list, it's not a matter of a right and wrong list, just like our stuff up there is not right or wrong, but what it is, irrefutably, is what we think today. What was remarkable about this particular list is that it was a group of people that came from every continent. It was a group of people that came from every education sector and there was widespread agreement that these things were having an impact on everybody. So it wasn't just schools, it wasn't just universities, it wasn't private, it was everybody. I'm just going to have a look at these now in no particular order and just kind of pose some questions about how they might be implemented or are being implemented where you work. And until about 10 past before we have morning tea. So it was mentioned on one of these things up here, this question of the bring your own device thing, that everybody has their own technology. Most of us today in the room, if not all of us, have our own device in our pocket. Some of you brought your own Wi-Fi. So in your organisation, how's it being handled? I mean, one of the first things that happened back in South Australia, where I work, is that the policies had to be rewritten so that, you know, that thing when you get, when you log onto your desktop, basically you're pledging that you're not going to make bombs or look at porn or bring down the government when you use a TAFE computer, for example. That all becomes irrelevant because you've got your iPad and your iPhone. And what you do on your device in this room, in your time, not my responsibility, not the organisation's responsibility, the policies need to be written, rewritten to reflect it. So that's an organisational thing. Is there a decent working wireless network? Someone wrote in the today's meet. Anyone thinking about how students feel when they come into to TAFE today and they try and get on the network? Good question. 
But the simple, not so simple, the overarching principle of this is it's no longer one size fits all. The profound impact that this bring your own device culture has had means that you no longer rely on the teacher or the organisation to provide you with what you need. Just five years ago, you came to the school, uni, TAFE, TAFE gave you the computer, gave you the software, gave you the connection, now you bring all that stuff yourself. So you're a much more individualised creature that is less dependent on the organisation, less likely to accept the controls and restrictions of an organisation, and that's the principle that really matters here, that that changes the way an organisation relates to its customers, it changes the way that a teacher relates to their students. Someone down the back said, I don't want the course coming to my mobile phone and I said you might be in the minority because it became official last year around sometime in 2012, more than half the planet accesses the internet on a mobile device. Those figures are kind of inflated by the particularly what's going on in the developing world where they didn't have the desktop or PC revolution that we did, they've gone straight to PC or the internet just happens on a mobile. So an important thing here to recognise is that this is the case, and this figure is only going to go up and up. That you don't design for a desktop anymore, or even a laptop, you design for mobile. So if your content isn't usable, readable, attractive on a mobile, then you've got it wrong, go back, start again. There'll be different opinions in the room about things like Moodle, but what Moodle 2 does is, a, I, I'm, I'm just really impressed. You, can, you design your course in Moodle for a normal computer, have a look at that same course via the Moodle app on a phone, and it's just amazing how it reformats. And Lee Blackall was just in a, on a discussion list that we're both on, looking at ways of getting mobilising the content of a desktop appearance and having it look actually better in the mobile format. So it, the important thing is, is your content accessible on a mobile? And can you teach or can your students access assignments and activities on tablets and phones? The world is open. This is a screenshot from a book by Kurt Bonk, who was in Australia not long ago. And let's look at openness under these four headings. Resources, courses, attitude and communication. So again, this was identified as having a, a it's a global thing, this, this move towards openness. You need to have some resources free for public perusal. Open University UK is a case in point. Every single course they offer is there. You have to pay to actually do the course, but if you want to just look at the content, it's there. They're not the only people doing this, but the, the important thing in the Australian context, particularly in the Australian TAFE context, is this notion of all copyright is owned by the minister. I mean, whatever good did that do? I mean, all it ever did was get in the way of doing creative things and maybe promoting yourself beyond your borders. It needs to go, this owned by the minister rubbish. These kinds of regulations were formed in a different era and it's been described as an era of content scarcity where it had value because it was locked up in books or magazines or periodicals. It's not anymore, it's everywhere. It's on the internet, we can all get it. Content no longer has the value that it did have once upon a time. It's an age of content abundance. Ancient modes of copyright need to be, copyright need to be set aside. 
So this is a really the similar argument. MIT is the famous example. They were perhaps the first organisation to do this, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Again, I'll refer to Lee, who's in the room with us, had a significant impact on what happens at Otago Polytechnic in New Zealand. They've got some stuff which is open and available for everybody. So you need to have some of your courses publicly available. And you could invite the public into your course. It's possible. All learning management systems, which is what most people are going to be using, you can make your course open to guest access. And there's lots of lovely stories about what's happened with people who've done this, but few dare. The attitude communication thing, and this is not so much a teaching thing, it's, a, it's an organisation-wide ability to communicate in a transparent, and not transparent in the sense of it being spin transparent, really transparent, where it's two-way, where it's totally open, and public, robust, critical debate can take place. Someone who does this pretty well is a guy called Greg Whitby. He's a principal of a, a group of schools here in Western Sydney. I like this notion, and I'd never really thought about this. I've been reading a book by a guy called Jeff Jarvis called Public Parts, and he says privacy covers up weaknesses. And organisations that are threatened by being public or open, it's because they don't want the dirt to be aired. They want the, the, the problems and the, the weaknesses kept in-house. But this actually means that those weaknesses can endure and they don't get fixed. Go public with this stuff and it gets fixed because of the obvious reason, really. So there's big advantages to publicness. I think this is great. This comes from Don Tapscott. The ability to integrate the talents of dispersed individuals and organisations is becoming the defining competency for managers and firms. The ability to integrate talents of dispersed individuals and organisations. So recognising we are dispersed, different, not conglomerated in, in one place anymore, a significant role for new managers, new companies. I love this example. Some of you may have heard about it. Uh, in May, the University of South Australia in Adelaide did this amazing thing. They had a uni jam. And I'd been wanting to get this going in TAFE, but it got nowhere. And then I saw this poster as I walked down a street in Adelaide, and I thought, hallelujah, someone's done it. This was a 72-hour debate, discussion, with anybody who had a uni essay address. Students, current staff, alumni, Everybody was in there debating their vision of the future of UniSA, and it ran non-stop for 72 hours. At midnight, at each of the days, the, the Vice-Chancellor went online and had a cup of coffee there and sort of summarised the day and just sat there in his T-shirt, and it, it was truly open. It was truly transparent, and the remarkable thing about it is they made decisions based on that event, really significant decisions like they will not close the McGill campus, which had been debated for years in Adelaide. And I just thought, this is a gutsy organisation who's doing it differently. How you think about this stuff really depends on how you see the crowd. And it's, you know, either you're a collective wisdom person or a stupidity of the masses person. But as usual, the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Informal learning refuses to go away. Every time you look at this data about the role of important inf informal learning in people's lives, it always comes out at around 70%. And it's been consistent for a long, long time. And it, it's still the case. And there was a conversation going on over here about 
do you need to go to class to learn stuff? Well, in many cases you don't, and I think we as educators just need to wake up to the fact that we're actually pretty insignificant in the overall role of how people learn. Think network learning, communities of practice, Facebook, YouTube, all these places were out there communicating and learning from each other, independent of schools, universities, colleges. So a lot, if not most, of learning takes place outside. All we do is give people the skills to do it when they move out the door. Literacies was mentioned, it's up there on the board. Uh, literacy, of course, no longer means reading and writing and arithmetic. It means a whole lot of extra stuff. And all of these prefixes that you find, like digital, critical, techno, video, media, gets put in front of the word literacy, and they all mean something a little bit different. And, but, so there's a, a group of what's called multiliteracies now, sometimes referred to as transliteracies. Main point is there are new literacies which have been mainly promoted or caused by the, the rise of digital technology. Alison referred to the digital divide this morning and we, we all have an idea of what the digital divide normally means where it's that division between people who have access to technology and those who don't. I think there's a new digital divide and I think it's not about access to technology, it's knowing what to do with it. Because I'm now seeing a real division, certainly in the groups of staff that I work with, where there's a bunch of people in the room, they know how this technology works. They know how to use it to their advantage. I see groups of you know, mostly younger people using this technology in a very different way to self-promote, to events, and they, they just know how it works, and yet there's a whole huge a number of people in the society who are really, they know how to surf, they know how to book a flight, but they don't really understand how this technology has changed the way that people distribute, process, share information and learning. So that to me is another digital divide that we need to address as educators. Do we do this inside our existing courses? Is it our responsibility or should there be a prerequisite kind of a multi-literacy course for everybody who enters our organisations? MOOCs. Everybody's got one. Everybody wants one. Anyone done one? Anyone finished one? <laughs> oh, bravo. <laughs> I mean, they've been an amazing thing in the last, well, mostly 12 months in mainstream. They were actually around for many, many years back. In fact, George sitting over there and Stephen Downs ran one. When was that, George? 2008. Seems to have been forgotten. I read another article about MOOCs that said it was all started by the people at Stanford and Harvard. But anyway, they, you could even argue that Lee was responsible for another one a little bit earlier than that. But the fact is they are massive open online courses. They're free. Some models of MOOC mean that you pay if you want to be assessed. You pay if you want to get qualification. But just to sit in on the course and get the content, free. So isn't that interesting? They've decided content, no value. Here it is. These people have decided the value is in my ability to assess how well you have assimilated or integrated that or applied that knowledge. And if you want a qualification to reflect that, pay up again. No one's done it in vet yet, I thought, but I hear from Stefan that uh, yes, there is a MOOC or three happening from right here in Sydney Institute, so maybe you can tell us about that later. So MOOCs are part of the, the educational furniture, if you like, now. 
and what they do in the long term and what impact they're going to have is going to be a fascinating thing to watch. So MOOC is a new business model and this was a thing that was identified as a global thing, a global trend and the, the vet sector in Australia is state by state being subjected to a new business model but that's not the only place new business models are occurring so MOOC's a case in point uh, if you're throwing all your resources open well that's a new business model Google and Facebook have done it within context advertising this is a new business model that's obviously reaping those companies a fortune was unheard of years ago I mean how do they make money these people through advertising just an example of a lovely story I hear, and it was again in that book, I think, by Jeff Jarvis, community-based newspaper in the United States, like all newspapers everywhere, disappearing virtually as you watch because people are getting all their news on the, through digital technologies. They decided to go to the community and ask them, what do you want to see in our paper? What do you want to read? And would you be prepared to pay for it? If so, how much? They now have a, a subscription of about 160,000 paid customers on a sliding scale of interest, like maybe some pay five, some pay 50 bucks, but the paper thrives and survives because they only put in that paper what the community have told them they want to read. New business model. Wouldn't it be interesting if we went out to the community around our colleges and tapes and unis and said, what do you want, people, and offered what they wanted rather than what we thought they wanted? Two great books to follow up all of this stuff. I've mentioned Jeff Jarvis. Wikinomics is probably five years old now by Don Tapscott and Anthony Williams. But that was the book for me that kind of, it just changed the way I saw the world. And I've all often said, anybody who manages anything anywhere should read the first 50 pages of that book because then you'll understand how there's a radically different way of doing business in the world. And it's about being open. We'll come back to that later. This was mentioned up on your list there, the global collaborative stuff. <clears throat> UniJam's an example of how a whole organisation can approach this, but it really needs to be more emphasised as a principal form of assessment. In the online forum on Mahara in the last few days, someone mentioned cheating being a problem. My first response to that whenever I hear it is, there's something wrong with your, with, with your assessment. You need to design for cheating. Design for cheating means to do the assessment, you've got to talk to people. You've got to sit in a group and exchange ideas. You've got to go to the internet and get extra data or even go to the library or talk to people. You need to bring in information from multiple sources, synthesize, then answer the question. It's not always possible in all cases, but there are lots of times when it is possible, difficult to design, harder to assess, and again, a vet sector example, someone in Queensland told Alison and I the other day, a vet regulator told this lecturer, get rid of this collaboration stuff, but we can't audit it. Bad, bad policy. Interesting, isn't it, that the only place, the only time in our life where we ever sit on our own and do a test is in an educational organisation. Then we go out into the world and we never do that ever again because that's not how the world works. If there's a problem or stuff that needs to be discovered and learned in the real world, we sit down with a group of people and we work it out. But we don't get trained to do that inside our educational organisations. A lot more of this needs to happen. So more professional development needed on all these other approaches, scenario-based learning, flipped learning, assessment for learning, and here, I think, is a really interesting connection with these things called employability skills. And in the higher ed sector, there's the graduate attributes. 
In the vet sector, these have been kind of ordained by industry. These are the things that industry told the sector, this is what we want from our graduates. There were discussion over there earlier about our extra qualifications needed. I've been in the room several times with employers, and if employers are asked, if you, if you had a choice between the person who's got the qualification, but is hopeless on this stuff, or they've got this and no qualification, who's the employer going to take? The person who's got this stuff. They don't care about the skills, they can train that. These are priceless. In fact, this guy, who's the head of this company, a training organisation, says soft skills are the hard skills of industry. And what he means is it's really hard for industry to find people who've got them. And he says it's ridiculous to call these things the soft skills because they're incredibly complex and difficult and valuable. So, if we look at the uh, graduate, graduate attributes, I don't know where this one particularly came from, but every university site has a list. They're always much the same. They look very similar to the employability skills used in the vet sector. The ticks there just indicate where collaboration actually leads to these things. So there's a very close connection between collaboration and employability skills and graduate attributes. I'm going to skip through this. And, well, maybe I should. That's actually a nice quote, I think. a mixed portfolio approach. Um, Greg Whitby I mentioned earlier has this representation of the changing learning agenda. The column on the left is where we've been mostly for a hundred years. The column on the right represents where we're heading to or should be. So we're moving from formal learning to informal learning spaces mass learning to personalise, competitive assessment, moving over towards more collaborative learning and assessment, and so on. So Greg Whitby is saying, this is where we need to go. And if we think about employability skills, again, or the graduate attributes, it's really easy to see the connection between these things and that right-hand side of the learning agenda where we should be moving towards. And same thing with the graduate attributes. So, I like to ask this question. If we spent a hundred years over here, are we all supposed to all of a sudden move over here? And I'd say no. Personally, I don't think we should. And it's actually interesting to ask people, what do you think from traditional learning should be retained? That's a really interesting discussion to have with people. But we're not, I'm certainly not, and I think I speak for Alison, when we're not advocating a wholesale move to the right, you will move back and forth or be somewhere on a continuum depending on context, the subject you're teaching, the learners you've got, your own skills, what's possible within your organisation. But if you're sitting over there on the left all the time, then you're really being irrelevant and basically not very helpful. So I reckon that's enough for me. Um, there's the summary. that sort of stuff that I've been talked about. These slides are, are on the website attached to this event. Nice dramatic question to pause with or finish with. We grew up with Kodak being synonymous with photography and with cameras. They've gone. 
They've gone because they ignored this stuff. They thought it would all go away or somehow the old model would survive. It didn't. And I don't see why education should be as arrogant to think that if we stick in our old ways that we might not disappear either. So, dramatic statement, but pause for uh, cause for thought. And uh, it's morning tea time. Is that right, Alison? 20 minutes?